This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. For Americans, where the Reformed theology, piety, and practice is a fraction of the number of Christians, it is easy to overlook the presence of the Reformed faith in other parts of the world. There are Reformed Christians and churches across the globe, however, in Nigeria, South Korea, in Brazil, in New Zealand, and Australia. This week, we've had the pleasure of hosting two representatives of the Reformed Theological College in Melbourne, Australia. Formerly located in Geelong and recently relocated to the central business district of Melbourne, the RTC is a theological seminary founded in 1954 by the Reformed Churches of Australia. They confess the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the Westminster Standards. The Reverend Dr. Murray Capel is principal of RTC. He is originally from New Zealand, where he pastored a church in Auckland for 10 years, came to Australia in 2001 to teach part-time at the college and to continue pastoral ministry. Since 2006, he's taught practical theology full-time and in 2008 became principal of the Reformed Theological College. He's author of Preaching with Spiritual Vigor and The Heart is the Target. Murray is married to Wendy. They have five children and one grandchild. He earned his D-Min degree at Westminster Seminary, California in 2001. Also joining us today is Mr. John Bilsma. He's an Australian and a member of the Board of Directors of the Reformed Theological College. Hi, men, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Well, Dr. Murray Capel and uh, Mr. John Bilsma. Dr. Capel is the principal, as I said, of the Reformed Theological College in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, John is on the board of directors there. Tell us, first of all, why you're in the States. Is this some sort of exploratory venture? Or what's happening? Yes, we wanted to uh, come to the States and visit a number of seminaries, including uh, Westminster here in California, because we as a college in Melbourne have been undergoing significant change. And part of that change process has been wanting to connect with like-minded people in other parts of the world. So we've really enjoyed connecting with all sorts of people over here, learning, picking people's brains, seeing what possibilities there are to relate to seminaries in the States. What kind of changes are you talking about? What's happening? Well, fairly radical in some ways. I've sometimes said we've changed over the last two years everything except our theology. And the reason for a significant change is that we were really struggling with changing patterns of enrollment. We're located in Victoria, one of the southern states in Australia. And historically, our students would come from around Australia and New Zealand. But we've found in recent years, more and more students have been disinclined to relocate for study. Much more interested in flexible mode education and moving towards more and more part-time study. So we kind of resisted that tide for a long time. But in a major review of where our college was at a couple of years ago, we started to interact with those changes. So we relocated the college from a small provincial city, Geelong, into Melbourne, which is a large city of 4 million people. And we're now right in the heart of Melbourne City. And we've also embraced flexible mode education and so made our course offerings much more available to people around Australia, which is a large country, and uh, New Zealand and potentially far beyond as well. Yeah, when I think of RTC, I think of Geelong. So to say RTC Melbourne is interesting. When did you move from Geelong to Melbourne? Just the beginning of this year. Right. So we opened uh, a new campus in the centre of Melbourne in February of 2017. 
So tell us a little bit of the history of the college. And when you say theological college in the States, that's a theological seminary. Is that a good equivalent? That's exactly right. So RTC began in 1955. We're just over 60 years old. It's a theological college established on the Reformed Confessions. We hold to the three forms of unity, the Continental Confessions and also the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have close working relationships with three small Reformed denominations in our part of the world. And over the years, we have trained many of their pastors and have relationships with them in order to provide ministry training. One of the reasons why I wanted you fellows to sit down and talk with us is so that our listeners could get to know a little bit about the state of things in Australia and to get to know some of the churches in Australia. So we here at Westminster Seminary California typically serve, not exclusively, but most of the time our graduates go into denominations that are part of the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council, a NAPARC. Mm-hmm. So that's typically the PCA, the OPC, or the URCs, and then there are are some other groups that we have served, and then sometimes people go into uh, denominations that are not connected to NAPARC, and then we have about 30% of our students who go into non-ecclesiastical service of various kinds, whether it's further education or counseling or writing or what have you. Mm. So what are the principal denominations in Australia that you serve? Yeah, we've historically served three denominations, the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia, the Reformed Churches of New Zealand and the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about those groups? Well, the CRCA is a denomination of about 50 to 60 congregations. It's spread across Australia. It was a church, and it's the same for the RCNZ, really established by Dutch immigrants in the early 1950s. And very early on in their journey, they established a theological college, recognizing the importance of training people for ministry. So the Dutch immigrants planted and established a lot of churches, and the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia grow out of that tradition. But in more recent years, they've really been wrestling with what does it look like to be true to that heritage, to be faithful to Reformed theology, but now do that not as an immigrant church, but as an indigenous Australian church. And how do you be Reformed in the 21st century in Australia and be outward-looking, not inward-looking? And I think that's been the huge wrestle of the CRCA in recent years. So these were immigrants to Australia. Did they come after World War II or before World War II? Well, perhaps I can answer that question because my parents were, in fact, uh, Dutch migrants. They arrived in 1952. I live in Perth, which is on the, the west coast of Australia. My parents arrived in 1952, as did many Dutch migrants at that time, and it was really post-war. They'd lived through, obviously, difficult times in Europe and were looking for a fresh beginning. And there was a wave of migration to Australia, not just from the Dutch, but also Italian migration, Greek migration and so on. I was actually born in Australia. I'm first-generation Australian, but my parents were these Dutch migrants. So I've observed over the years them being passionate about establishing churches. And you've got to put this into context. These are migrants that came to the country with nothing. Some of them couldn't speak English. Uh, My mother, for example, couldn't speak English uh, when she first arrived. But they had a passion for starting churches. They had a passion for starting Christian schools. And they even had a passion for starting a theological college, uh, which is really quite visionary when you think about it, because these are migrant parents or communities that really had no money. Some of them didn't have jobs. Here they were thinking about doing all these three things. So it's a remarkable heritage in so many different ways. And, uh, you know, we've watched that grow over the last 60 odd years. Um, I now have grown children who are married. We call ourselves the sandwich generation. We're between what's gone before us and what's coming after us. Uh, And it's an exciting time, really. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. 
Is there much preservation of the Dutch culture? For example, we still have a Dutch festival here in our congregation, the congregation that I serve here in Escondido. And, uh, you know, we have Stropwaffle and Ole Bolin and all of that. Is that happening in Australia? Well, it, it, it's interesting because uh, I grew up with all of that. In fact, um, when I was a young child, we only ever spoke Dutch at home because my mother couldn't speak English. And it was only until I turned about five and, and started going to school that the, the teachers were saying to my parents, hey, you better start speaking English because your son can't <laughs> speak English. And so our generation grew up with all of that Dutch stuff, you know, as you say, Oli Bola, Croquettes. Um, the Dutch loved doing community together back in those days, and I guess because they were migrants, they stuck together. And parties were legendary. Birthday parties were legendary. You know, the Croquettes, the Oli Bola, the Bessie and Ava, all that stuff, you know. King mints or queen mints? Uh, king. Okay. <laughs> no, definitely king. No, definitely yeah, king. It's just in case the listener doesn't know, king mints are the serious ones. They're large. And so at the beginning of a sermon right, in a Dutch congregation, folks will take out the king mints or sometimes the queen mints. And that's sort of the unofficial timer for the sermon. So once the king mint is gone, the sermon's supposed to be wrapping up. And I have complained sometimes that people have been known to open up the king mints while we're singing the psalm before the sermon, mm. which is not fair because now the timer has started before I've even gotten in the pulpit. So. I need to tell you, Scott, that the Kingmans have been replaced, though, by the Mentos. I don't, you have oh, Mentos yes, there? yes. Yeah, yeah we uh, have Mentos. Yeah. So it's still just before the sermon, the Mentos gets passed <laughs> up and down the up and down the Yeah, aisles. this is a thing. It still happens here. You can hear the rustle. Mm. So there's two sounds that you hear when uh, the minister announces the passage. People begin flipping in their Bibles to the passage, and then shortly thereafter, there's a second wave of rustling. Mm. And then that is Indeed. the opening of the King Mints and the Queen Mints. Murray, are you familiar with this? These things will definitely keep you awake. Yeah, well, I, I don't come from a Dutch background and came into the Reformed churches in New Zealand when I was in my late teens. And a lot of these things were quite a shock and a surprise when I came in, <laughs> encountered all sorts of stuff. I must say, I developed quite a um, liking for Ollie Oh, there you go. But um, Stropwaffle mm, is very good too. None of that salted licorice. I can't, can't oh, cope. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're a Gentile grafted in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More seriously, though, I think Reformed churches in our part of the world have struggled with that, because what that's often done is it's created the identity that being Reformed is about being Dutch. And the churches are really wrestling with how do we break free from that identity, because we don't primarily want to be known as Dutch. Many of us aren't. We're in Australia. We want to reach out to the community around us. We want to be contemporary and relevant to the people around us whilst holding our identity as being people in Christ. And that's really a big, big issue. And I'm glad you made that point because the federation that I serve, the United Reformed Churches, I think we face a similar sort of Christ and culture question. What mm. are we? Well, we're mm. Christians. We're Reformed Christians. We hold the historic Christian faith. We start with the Word of God, of course, as the final authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. And we come out, some of us anyway, and some of us not, out of a particular cultural background, which is valuable. Mm. We don't necessarily need to jettison all of that. People have sometimes spoken in jest and sometimes more seriously about burning the wooden shoes as a way of mm. you know, getting at this question. And I'm not advocating a position one way or another on that, because there are good things that come with that inheritance, the prayers before meals, the reading of Scripture after meals, mm. the devotion to attending to the means of grace you know, mm. twice on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, and the uh, value placed on catechesis mm. and all of those things, the mm. preservation of psalmody is an extraordinarily valuable thing in the life of the church. And yet, it can be so identified with particular cultural expressions. When we were laughing about Ole Boland and Stropwaffle and the 
alike that people have a hard time distinguishing the one from the other. That's exactly the problem, isn't it? And they think to be Dutch, it might be a temptation to think, you know, if I'm Dutch, then I'm a Christian or I'm Reformed. Mm -hmm. And as you were suggesting, you you and I are Gentiles grafted into this. We're wild olive branches grafted into the Israel of God, and we're not here because of ethnicity, however much we may come to appreciate aspects of it. We're here for the confession, right? Uh, The Belgic, the Heidelberg, the Canons, and uh, as you were saying, the Westminster Standards. Mm. So how are you navigating that? Well, as a college, we've identified six values that we really want to accent. And maybe I can just walk through those very quickly because I think they help identify how we're trying to be distinctively reformed in the current context in which we find ourselves. And uh, in many ways, these six values are, you know, they're not shocking or surprising, but I think they're really important emphases. So the first one is simply to say biblically grounded and everything we do at college and everything we want to see in the pastors that we train is that it's rooted deeply in God's word. And we have a very high view of Scripture and believe that all ministry, all theology is grounded in Scripture. So that's the first one. Secondly, theologically robust. And of course, the theology that we represent is Reformed theology, and we want to establish people strongly in that and uh, let them see the riches and the delight and the uh, beauty of a robust biblical theology. Thirdly, we say that as we're grounded in Scripture and as we're theologically robust, we want to be gospel-focused. At the end of the day, that's what the Scriptures are about. That's what our theology is about. So we want to ensure that our students have a love of the gospel and are equipped to minister and advance and spread and preach the gospel. The fourth one that goes alongside that is to say we want to be spiritually rich. And I think we're really deeply aware of the danger and I would say particularly amongst Reformed people, that we can be good at doing head stuff and bad at doing heart stuff. And we're very aware that at a theological college or a seminary, as you would call it, it's actually possible for people to grow academically and diminish spiritually during their time of study. And we think that's a travesty. You know, that's tragic. It's not Reformed, right? I mean, look at any of the great Reformed writers in the classical period. There are always two things that they want to talk about, right? They want to get the doctrine right, but the second half of any important book, really, is how does this work out in the Christian life? And how does this flow into piety, our relation to God? And how does this then flow into our practice, the way we live out our faith? And if those things aren't connected, then we're really not being faithful. We've missed the heart of the gospel and the heart of what our theology is all about. So a big accent on that, on training and then ministry and church life that's spiritually rich. The fifth one that we have is being culturally relevant. And that's... um, You know, there's all sorts of complexity around the issue of what that means. But at the most simple take, we want to be people who come across as those who know how to live in the 21st century and relate to the people around us, the communities that we're in, know how to interact with some of the issues that are going on in society. So although we're deeply rooted in the Bible and although we're deeply rooted in the Reformed confessions, we don't want to sound like we've just stepped out of the 16th or 17th century. I want to train preachers who sound like they're preaching in the 21st century and connecting to life as it actually is. And so then the final quality that we're emphasizing is a little different from the others, but to us it's become very important. And that is to say we want to be winsomely engaging. And the reason we've gone there is often in our part of the world, I don't know how it is here so much, but in our part of the world often being reformed was something that either people didn't know about or it was a negative. If you're talking the wider evangelical community, I think Reformed was either unknown or viewed negatively. And we, we, we're we not keen on either of that. We want it to be known, <laughs> and we want it to be known positively. And I think some of the reason it was known negatively is the reputation was that Reformed people are 
you know, they're hardline and they're tough and they're in for a fight and they're kind of difficult and they're very dogmatic. And, um, you know, I've given a bit of a serve to the reputation of being difficult, Dutch and dogmatic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we're trying to say, look, you can be reformed in a winsome, gracious, loving way, which doesn't mean you're, you're soft on stuff. You're very clear about what you mean, but I think we want to represent the gospel in the most winsome way we can. So those are the things we're accenting as a college, and we hope that that will flavor the way in which people minister the gospel as they go from us. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ his gospel, and his church. Those last two are very interesting. All of them are, but particularly it might be interesting to talk about the last two. First, uh, being culturally relevant, and then the second being winsome. I don't see how anybody could object to either one, Mm. but as you say, it is a challenge to be culturally relevant. Australia is largely, I think, I take, a post-Christian culture. So... Being culturally relevant in a post-Christian culture brings with it a whole host of questions. Not least among them, how do we mediate Christianity to people who no longer have any real sense of what that is? That's exactly right. How are you working that out? Well, we're very conscious that Australia is an extremely secular country. You know, just this week, the vote has gone through to legalize gay marriage, or it was a... a, um, What do you call it, John? Well, it was meant to be a plebiscite. A plebiscite. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, you know, that's gone through fairly clearly, about 60% in favour, and the government will inevitably follow through on that. And that's just symptomatic of it being a country that is post-Christian, post-Christendom. And I think we have to think about, you know, what does it mean to stand for the gospel in that context? And you can't just appeal to the Bible and say, you've got to believe it. You can't just legislate what's in there. We're well beyond the time when that could happen. I think we've got to find ways of, and that ties in with the last point, of living the gospel in a winsome, engaging way so that the people around us in our communities see that actually, although we've branded them as fundamentalist and bigoted and right-winged, in reality, this is actually 
the most gracious person I've ever met. The, you know, they're forgiving and they're real and they're genuine. There's authenticity. And I actually think a lot comes down not now to political agenda and to placarding our morality, but to living the gospel in a way that actually earns a chance to perhaps go further. And you start a long way back in talking to the average Aussie about the gospel. Often you're just trying to build a platform of integrity and relationship where you might get an opening to say something. And you're still announcing the gospel graciously, winsomely in the pulpit and publishing it, right, as you have opportunity and talking to your neighbors and friends and coworkers, just as we are. But I take it you're simply saying you want Reformed Christians to concentrate on being careful on how they relate to the broader culture and to do so out of, when you say living the gospel, I take it you mean living out of the gospel, living according to the consequences. Exactly. Not that the gospel is what we do, but living in light of the gospel. Yeah, exactly. And as Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, you know, living lives that adorn the gospel. The, the gospel is this beautiful treasure of what we have in Christ, fully accomplished by him. But that completely changes the way that we live. And that's what enables us then to live these lives that show to others the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Reformed folk, we ought to be the most conscious of the greatness of our sin and misery Mm -hmm. and how we're redeemed from all our sins and misery. And then as a consequence, ought to be marked with humility and grace and uh, kindness and winsomeness. Now, this last point, winsomeness, that is a difficult thing Mm. because in a post-Christian culture, you know, when somebody says, well, what do you think about this? Now we're hard-pressed. We have to say, well, we think we understand how you feel about this, how you think about this issue, but this is how we look at it, and this is why. And the moment we say what we actually think, right, there's going to be some tension, and it's going to be hard for people to hear what we think, no matter how patient, how gracious, how kind, how generous we are in the way we give an account of whether it is what we think about creational sexual ethics, right? That would be, I would think, how we would want to go at, at least that's how I mm-hmm. would want to go at talking about the normativity of heterosexuality. Mm. But just to say, listen, Jesus is the Savior, and he's the only Savior in a post-Christian in sometimes implicitly polytheistic world to say there's only one way to God. That is inherently offensive. It's deeply offensive. And I think, you know, whilst we want to um, be as winsome and gracious as possible and seek as many opportunities as we can to preach the gospel very clearly, we also recognize that days of suffering, days of persecution are highly likely. And increasingly, I'm hearing preachers in the Reformed tradition in Australia talking about the need to prepare the next generation for persecution. Mm. And that's that's pretty disturbing. You know, we haven't been there in my lifetime, but I think the reality is the pinch is going to come. It's happened very quickly, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I try to communicate to my students that I have watched in my own lifetime the end of Christendom. Mm. So that as a boy, not raised in church particularly, I was very conscious that Sundays were a unique day. And I knew they were unique because everything was closed, right? I hated Sundays as a boy because there was nothing to do, no place to go. And we weren't meant to go out of the house until sometime after 11, partly because we weren't supposed to be making a lot of noise early on Sunday. But secondly, because it was a little scandalous, you know, not to be loading up into the car and going to church. Mm. You didn't want to make a show of not doing that. 
And then in the late 70s, the blue laws were stricken, that the morality laws about uh, you know some of the liquor laws, when things could be open, the Sabbath laws, all of those things went away very quickly from the late 70s through the 80s. My students have grown up in a world in which there are virtually no restrictions mm. of that kind, and they have no experience of Christianity or the Christian churches having any privileged place in society. In fact, their experience is really quite the opposite. And I remember when it was common for a public figure in the United States to stand up and say, whether it was true or not is another question, but to say, we are all Christians and uh, this is a mm -hmm. Christian nation and politicians were expected to say that sort of thing. Today, if someone were to say that, that would be hotly controversial mm. and it might doom their public career. That's how radically things have changed. Yeah, and no, I agree. It's very interesting because if you wanted to get a comparison between, say, the United States and the USA, um, I watched with some interest the inauguration of the president. And I was actually blown away by the fact that there were four religious leaders. Uh, I can't remember exactly who they were. I think one was the um, Archbishop of New York and there was a number of others who came up and prayed at that inauguration. So this is a public inauguration being beamed to the rest of the world. And I sat there with my wife at night saying, this would never happen in our country. It would never happen in yeah. our country that at the inauguration of a prime minister, you'd have these prayerful moments. Now, that's really giving you some perspective of how secular I think our country has become. And I'll just share with you one other, um, you've probably seen the movie Concussion. It's a, a movie about concussion uh, that uh, NFL players have oh, experienced. Oh, yes, yeah. Okay, yeah. And there's this wonderful line in the movie, which um, really captured my, my imagination when one of the guys said, Sundays used to belong to the church. It now belongs to football. Yeah. You know, and that's how far we've come. Mm. That was the prediction when the NFL actually began playing on Sundays mm -hmm. was that it would destroy the church. And if the church is so easily destroyed, then it wasn't really all that strong, was it? And I think actually the encouragement I take is although it's really hard for us wrestling with how to be um, authentically Christian in this post-Christian, post-Constantinian world, how do we do that? The encouragement I have is that's the context in which the gospel initially spread. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. That's a hugely important point. It's not like we haven't done this before. We haven't. Right? And it happened wonderfully in those first few centuries of the Christian church. That there is a way in which the church can thrive and grow in persecution, not state-sanctioned, pre-Constantine. That's the context of the early church growth. And I think in many ways we've returned to that context and we're going to learn more and more what it looks like to live as a minority people without state protection who are persecuted, but we know and love the gospel. We know the word of God. We preach it. We live it in terms of its outworkings and, and implications. And God adds to their number daily those who are being saved. It's interesting that you've raised the specter of persecution because this is something that when I began teaching, I said, you know, who knows, in the future there could be. But over the last 10 years, the potential anyway, even in the United States, maybe not of the sort of persecution that happens in other parts of the world, but at least the potential is more thinkable now mm. than it was when I began my ministry in 1987 and 1988. I remember my internship, the minister with whom I served in Bakersfield, when we would go to dinner in a restaurant and he would say rather loudly, you know, shall we pray? And people would stop eating hmm. and they would wait for him to finish praying. Mm. Today, that's, again, that's unthinkable. Almost unheard of. Yes. And that's only 30 years in which that's happened. And we've had people who've been shot 
in the United States simply for identifying themselves as Christian. Mm. We had a mass shooting in mm. which the shooter asked the young people, are you a Christian? Mm. And those who said yes were martyred for their faith. So that's somewhat unusual, but it is not something that I think would have happened, you know, 50 years ago. I think one of the positives that I see from this challenge is that, you know, we've been complacent, I think, for too long. And I think in our country, we're now having to stand up and be counted. I think we've assumed for far too long that we'd live in a state that basically supported Christianity. And we just took that for granted, I believe. I don't believe that the church has been strong enough in putting its position forward. And I think we're now being challenged. And I think that is actually a good thing. You know, we have to now stand up and be counted against a tide of anti-Christendom, you know. But I think for our generation, and I've you know, now got married children and so on, they're going to have to stand up and be counted and say, what do I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? You know, in a world that's going to be saying, well, you know, we just don't accept that. So I think complacency, I think, has been part of the problem. Mm. And I think that we're now being challenged. And challenge is often good. You know, we need to rise to that as difficult as it might be. It is clarifying, isn't it? When you're forced to by culture, by circumstances, by your neighbors, your co-workers, who no longer simply nod when you say, well, I'm a Christian, as if, well, of course, everyone is, at least nominally. Now they're likely to come back to you and say, well, you know, why or what on earth does that mean? Mm. And that's a different conversation, right? It is. And if I could just use an interesting example that I've seen both in New Zealand and in Australia a number of times is in more recent times, we've had a lot of immigrants from South Africa. And there in South Africa, it's still been the norm for um, people to go to church, large churches, reformed churches of various shades and theological positions. These immigrants have come to Australia or come to New Zealand, and initially they just they turn up at church like they always have. And then within a few weeks, they find, actually, we don't have to. In Australia, in New Zealand, that's not the norm. And it's almost like you see this watershed moment in the lives of many of these South African immigrants. They're either going to walk away from it now because they don't have to do it, or they're going to embrace it in a way that they've never embraced it before. And I think I've seen so many of these South African immigrants either drift away completely or become absolutely fantastic members of the Church of the Lord Jesus. And in a way, what's happened to them as they've stepped into a secular culture is what's going to happen to a whole lot of people in our own churches now. They're going to end up being faced with the reality of where, where do I actually stand in terms of the claims of Jesus Christ? The other two groups that you mentioned, the denominations, are the RCNC, the Reformed Church of New Zealand, mm -hmm. that's the group you were just mentioning, and then the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Australia. Give us just a quick thumbnail of those two groups. Well, Reformed Church of New Zealand, Reformed Churches of New Zealand, denomination I have come out of. I served in one of their churches in Auckland for 10 years. It's a wonderful um, denomination. It's fairly small, very faithful to the Reformed Confessions. And for your listeners here in the States, they'd appreciate that over the years there's been strong connections initially with the OPC and the RCNZ. And a number of OPC ministers came and served in New Zealand in the early years, the most prominent of whom was G.I. Williamson. And he had quite a shaping impact on RCNZ. And then more recently, RCNZ has developed closer ties with the URC and a number of their candidates for ministry train at Mid-America Reform Seminary. And some of our grads are either in the RCNZ or serving. I've heard that, which yeah, is, so. is, is great. And earlier on when I was in ministry in RCNZ, I came over here to Westminster and did the Doctor of Ministry program with you back 1997 to 2001. So there's been uh, quite a lot of contact between RCNZ and conservative seminaries and denominations here in the States. 
The Reformed Presbyterian Church is just a very small denomination located in Victoria, uh, in Australia, and again, quite connected with the Reformed Presbyterians here in North America. These would be folks with a Scottish or Scots-Irish background. Exactly. Uh, Psalm singers? Psalms only, unaccompanied, and uh, again, holding very strongly to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Last question. We've talked about some of the challenges and some of the ways that you're seeking at RTC to meet some of these challenges. What do you see, as much as you can, you men, what do you see as the future for Reformed Christianity in this brave new world in Australia and in New Zealand? I actually see it as very bright, not without its struggles, not without its difficulties. And our Australian context is very small. Our colleges, seminaries are much smaller than yours. But there is a growing interest in Reformed theology. And I think often people are finding that out of other traditions, they've lacked depth. They've lacked clarity. And the cultural context that we're talking about asks for depth. It asks for clarity on what you believe and why you believe it. And so there's a renewed interest in Reformed thinking. There's a wonderful spread of Reformed resources. The amount of publication over the last 20, 30 years has been astounding. What's available on the internet. And so we're seeing a generation arise in the Australian context of um, young men particularly who don't come out of a Reformed church, but they're starting to really appreciate Reformed theology. We're excited to see that, and we really hope to uh, strengthen their convictions and help them grow in their understanding of God. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.